0: Welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Nikki McKay sim Acting Senior Curator of Pictures and Manuscripts, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's fellowship presentation and to introduce you to our guest speaker, Dr Carolyn Young. As we begin, I acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians upon whose traditional lands we meet and pay my respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people past and present. Dr. Carolyn Young is the 2018 Friends of the National Library Creative Arts Fellow, a fellowship of four weeks of established or emerging, uh, for established or emerging creative artists. The fellowship supports Australian artists to develop new work creatively using or inspired by the library's collections and is generously funded by the Friends of the National Library. Carolyn is an award-winning visual artist with a specialisation in photography. She has a PhD in photography from the ANU uh, and honours degree in natural resources and has previously worked as an environmental scientist as well. She has a long list of accomplishments as a visual artist. In 2016, she won the Pat Corrigan Acquisitive Award at the Centre for Contemporary Photography. In 2015, she was shortlisted for the Bonus uh, Photography Prize and most recently, in 2017, she was shortlisted for the Fremantle Arts Centre Print Award. Carolyn has produced commissions for the Goulburn Regional Art Gallery, uh, the Centre uh, for Contemporary Photography and the City of Yarra, and the Centenary of Canberra. Her photography is also held in the collections of Parliament House, the ANU, and the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, amongst numerous others. It is through her photography that Carolyn shares the stories of the natural world that she gathers through her research, exploring and elucidating the connections between culture and nature. (laughs) Carolyn's landscape and still life series, Grassy Woodlands, was a collaborative project with woodland ecologist Dr Sue McIntyre and draws on the knowledge of ecologists and farmers to capture the diversity and beauty of the plant life in the temperate grassy woodlands ecosystem of the Canberra region. But we will hear a bit more about this project later from Dr Sue McIntyre herself with Carolyn. Carolyn's fellowship residency at the library furthered her examination of the grassy woodlands ecosystem, this time looking at the small Australian mammals that it inhabited. Her f- project entitled reimagining Australian mammals, uh, past and present, involved developing a new body of artwork that reimagines 19th century human experience with Australian mammals, and linking this to contemporary experiences, including that of the research ecologist. The focus of her research has been John Gould's book, The Mammals of Australia, with illustrations by Henry Constantine Richter the original of which she's been able to study here at the National Library. Among other early colonists' illustrations, uh, she's been looking at those by F.C. Bock and Elizabeth Gould. Uh, She's also studied the more recent illustrations of Australian mammals, including the posters uh, from the John H. Young collection. The resulting artwork has formed the basis for her solo art exhibition which opened just last week at the Goulburn Regional Art Gallery. So with that, I might just hand over to Carolyn to uh, tell us a little more about her project while she was here.
1: Thank you, Nikki, for that lovely warm welcome. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country. We gathered on today and pay my respects to the Ngunnawal and Ngambi elders past, present and emerging. I'd like to thank the library staff for giving me um, such great guidance here in the library and helping me explore the wonderful archive here. We had a really great four weeks. Um, it's quite extraordinary what's here in that special collections room. And I'd like to also thank the Friends of the National Library for their generous support to fund this fellowship. And finally, I'd like to thank you for coming and showing such interest in this topic. These two artworks neatly bookend my research, both in timeline and research focus. On the right, we have John Gould and the common brush-tailed possum. John Gould, as many of you may know, the famous, well-connected English naturalist, taxidermist, businessman, nicknamed the Birdman. You may have heard his name because of the the, um, Gould League here in Australia. He came to Australia in 1839 at the age of 34 and stayed for 19 months. What got me interested in researching Gould was his book, The Memoirs of Australia. And within that, his and his associates accounts of the sheer abundance of small mammals he encountered. For example, when writing about the southern brown bandicoot, he says, I have frequently trodden upon the almost invisible nest of this species and aroused the sleeping pair within, which would then dart away with the utmost rapidity and seek safety in the dense scrub beneath a stone on the hollow hole of a tree. And in quoting John Gilbert, his um, main collector, in his experience of the New Holland mouse, he says, Mr Gilbert states that while travelling among the high grass in the neighbourhood of the Guida, he constantly started it from out of the fizzes in the dry ground. We don't see this abundancy anymore. Our cultural reference are rabbits and the eastern grey kangaroo and the common brush-tail possum, probably in your backyard right now, at the compost, in the shed, eating their way through your garden. The artwork on the left is Adrian Manning and the Eastern Betong. Professor Adrian Manning is the research leader of the Mulligan's Flat Guru Woodland Experiment, and is based at ANU. People like Adrian are working towards creating some of the abundance again through reintroducing mammals to the ACT within the ecosystem called boxgum grassy woodlands. My artworks and the application of my research is situated in box gum grassy woodlands, commonly called grassy woodlands. Canberra is the heartland. We're situated right kind of in the middle, I get this working, down there is Canberra. Um, when the first settlers arrived and came here, they talked about the broad grassy plains and scattered trees, ready made for sheep. As Sue McIntyre writes in our book, grassy woodlands, or the remains of them, are the rural backdrop that most city dwellers drive through when they visit a friend or relative in the country. I do that every year to Tamworth, and I think it's a really nice way of summing what we see. They they, they once spread from Victoria to Queensland and now a nationally threatened ecological community. They are typified by widely spaced trees, predominantly eucalypts, with a grass and wildflower understory, What remains is largely restricted to roadsides and small reserves and cemeteries, and is only actually an approximate of the grasslands that existed before European invasion. And here we have a cemetery. This is one of my favourite sites to photograph, Bookham Cemetery, but because I shot this on dusk, it wasn't my favourite place to stay after the sun went down. And then another shot um, showing the same place, um, showing that carpet of flowers that um, would have been everywhere in spring in these ecosystems. I've been collaborating with Sue McIntyre on plant ecology of grassland woodlands. And I've known about the broader woodland research at ANU and wanted to learn more. I got involved in the periphery of the research at Mulligan's Gururoo when, when artist and resident at the ANU Fenner School of Environment and Society, and through the ANU Vice-Chancellor's College Artists Fellows Scheme. <clears throat> the Mulligan's Flat Roo Woodland Experiment takes place here. In, in this map you can see there's the Mulligan's um, Flat Woodland Sanctuary and there's the Roo Nature Reserve located in North Canberra nestled in amongst the suburbs. The experiment's in the north, so we can see um, horseback people, the local horseback drive, the Federal Highway, to give you a bit of a location. Many of you probably may have been there and experienced it. The experiment aims to find ways of improving biodiversity of boxcum grassy woodlands, and a lot, of, lot, of, a lot is going on in this research, including the addition of logs, prescribed burning, exclusion of feral predation through uh, exclusion of electrified fence, and within some areas exclusion of kangaroos. The part of the research which ties into my artwork is their work on introducing, reintroducing woodland animals that are now locally extinct. Culturally, the sanctuary is improving incredibly popular with locals and has become a tourist attraction. I tried to book my children into the um, kids program and it was booked out and only, like was a few days after the notice went out. And then recently at the scientists in the sanctuary talks, they were booked out as well. As context, I'll show you a couple of pictures I made while I was um, resident at Fenner. And this is an example of... Um, plants collected from Mulligan's flat in spring, showing some of the diversity, including the yam daisy, if you have a look at the image and see if you can find it. And then this one I worked with um, a collaboration with ecologist Dr. Philip Barton from the ANU as well, who's researching carrying insects. When Philip handed me the vial of insects, he assured me That once removed from the alcohol and let to dry, they would be beautiful and worth imaging. And he was right. The insects chosen for the photograph represent different ways of colonisation of kangaroos, um, kangaroo carrion. Um, Yeah, so the fly comes along first, takes the liquid, and then you have other... Insects come along that have drills, they can drill through the hide, and other little tiny mites will piggyback on the bigger insects, and on this wave goes until the the animal is slowly eaten away. When John Gould visited Australia, he forecast the demise of bigger Australian marsupials such as the thylacine, and not through overpopulation of these insects. But little did he fear the small to medium sized mammals such as betongs becoming vulnerable and extinct. They were considered too abundant and tenacious. A challenge in this research space is knowing what animals lived in grassy woodlands before European and sheep. Dr Fred Ford, a zoologist, was instrumental in understanding this through his research of our pellets at Wee Jasper, where he was able to identify through um, the skeletons left in the pellets what species would um, have existed here in the ACT about 100 years ago. This diagram shows a trophic web which for grassy woodlands, which aims to show the food consumption between different animals. And researchers use this diagram to describe the restoration process at Mulligan's flat and Gururoo Nature Reserve. The focus is on small to medium-sized animals, about rabbit size. These are the size that are more um, vulnerable to cats and foxes. And questions the researchers are asking, what happens to the ecosystem when key animals such as bedongs and quolls and habitat components such as logs are missing? Not much is known about these animals because they have been extinct in this region for 100 years. This diagram is a key source for guidance for my artworks. Adrian Manning suggested I look into Fred Ford's work. One of the first pieces I came across was his book published here at the library, John Gould's Extinct and Endangered Mammals of Australia. In his book, Ford traces 46 Australian mammal species featured in John Gould's Mammals of Australia that today are threatened and extinct. It was Fred Ford's book that got me thinking about Gould and wanting to know more about what it was like to walk through an Australian grassy woodland during the 19th century. Ford's book is sobering as he outlines the fate of animals after John Gould's time, largely influenced by rabbits, foxes and intensive pastoralism. The successful reintroduction of eastern betongs to Mulligan's Flat Woodland Century gives us today a hint of that abundancy experienced by Gould. Hence the two bookends to my research, starting with John Gould visiting Australia during the emergence of the natural sciences as a distinct discipline, through to the ecological research today at Mulligan's Flat Guru. Roo. So here we come to Gould's book. Gould came to Australia because he had started a folio on birds of Australia from London but found his collection of birds and those of others inadequate to describe and I think he was also worried about a competitor coming in and taking out his market. It's probably the real reason. He was accompanied by his wife, artist Elizabeth Gould, who worked as an illustrator with Gould on the publication, one of their sons, an animal collector, John Gilbert, and two servants. Upon arrival, he quickly added mammals to his research as he writes in the prefer- preface to his book it was not until however i arrived in the country that i found myself to be surrounded by objects as strange as if i had been transported to another country that i conceived the idea of devoting a proportion of my attention to the mammalian class of the extraordinary of his extraordinary fauna the memoirs of australia goo was author publisher bookseller published in 13 parts in three volumes from 1845 to 1863. It contains 182 illustrations, contributed to Gould and the artist H.C. Richter. It's by far the best and most comprehensive publication of artworks on the subjects of the 19th century, best to be seen first hand up in the Special Collections Room upstairs, and not here digitally. I was in Dimmicks a few months ago and came across some very bad reproductions of this artwork. It really made me sad because when you see the real ones, they just shine. The book is quite large; it's an imperial folio. It's about it's 55 centimeters high. And Gould was one of the first naturalists to, um, to accompany pictures with text. He writes text in an attractive way. He talks about he gives a description of the animal's external morphology reference to the sex's habitat, and he quotes correspondence and writes anecdotes when he had first-hand experience of the animal. This interesting text may have been one reason for a success, unlike George Robert Waterhouse, who was head of the British Museum in the 1840s. His publication, Natural History of Mammalia, was discontinued through lack of funding. And when I was looking through that book, I saw someone had written a note saying, I'm not surprised it got discontinuous, so boring. (laughs) It's like each animal has page after page after page just describing its morphology, but nothing else. Which may be good to someone studying the actual animal, but not to the general public. The lack of quality drawings also to help categorise and describe animals may have been impetus for Gould to publish his folio. But luxury picture books are expensive to make, and so he required subscriptions from the wealthy. And I read from that um, he would charge 41 pounds for a subscription. And in today's money, it's worth $8,400. So that's a nice book. (laughs) Makes mine a bargain today. There are a lot of other materials and knowledge from indigenous people, settlers, other researchers, naturalists, and illustrators of mammals. I've only touched the edge of this subject and would love to have more time to dig into this rich space. We're very fortunate here in the library to have the key plates or the pattern plates for the mammals of Australia. These are pre-publication lithographic impressions, hand-coloured with manuscript notes and were used as reference by the team of colourists producing prints for the publication. Here is the key plate for the yellow-footed antichinus. It was important for me to look at these key plates because I wanted to know how he um, made the animal look alive, how he captured its whiskers and its fur, and how he looked at showing some of its habitat, which was unusual for its time. And I think he applied egg white to the eyes because they really do shine when you look at them. Until about 1850, there was no satisfactory way of printing colours mechanically. The benefits of lithography were that the artist could draw directly onto a stone and then have an imprint made, negating the need to employ an engraver and cheaper than a copper plate. Having said that, though, for the publication of the Memoirs of Australia, I read that he made 26,572 plates, which would have had to have been handed. I suppose it's over a few years but still. <laughs> An up-close example I've given you there is, um, shows some of the handwritten instructions. I think this is Gould's hand, judging by what I've looked from his letters. So he's written about the anti see that the head and shoulders are quite as grey as the back. And then he said, keep the hairs as fine as possible and see that they show out. At least that's my interpretation of what he's written. His letters are very bad to read. Luckily, someone's transcribed a lot of them. Gould traveled initially to Tasmania and stayed for 11 months um, and stayed with the Franklins. Some lovely letters there about, um, from Jane Franklin to Elizabeth Gould, if people are interested. Gould did a trip to Adelaide and went north with Charles Sturt. They ran out of water and they had to make their way back for a few days without water, but they still managed to get some animals and collect them. He made two trips to New South Wales, the longest one where he stayed for four months at Urundi near East with his brother-in-law. And using Urundi as a base, he travelled as far north and inland as the Liverpool Range and Nemoy, assisted by two Indigenous men, Natty and Jemmy, who Gould termed as faithful companions and whose knowledge of wildlife and bushcraft he relied upon. His main collector, John Gilbert, initially stayed in Tasmania with him, then travelled to Perth, back to New South Wales, to Port Essington and then into Queensland, where he went on an ill-fated expedition with Leichard and got stabbed by an Indigenous man several years later. That happened after Gould had left Australia. That was the fate of another one of um, John Gould's key collectors, Frederick Strange. Here I've um, shot up a cyanotype a of the koala. So I've used the map, if you can see it on the slide, overlaid with eucalypt um, buds. And this brings me to the installation of my work at the Golden Regional Art Gallery. So it's a combination of these blueprints and still life work. I, for, for my fellow, from my research at the fellowship, from here at the library I produced 22 new works and they can be seen there on the wall in that installation shot. They're laid according to the trophic web, so that top layer of the predators, the second layer and third are the ones that eat other animals but not key level predators and then down the bottom are the herbivores. This exhibition continues till the 13th of October. In making the artworks, as I've mentioned, I used a photography process called Sinotype. It was invented in 1842 by Sir John Herschel, commonly known as a blueprint, Um, and it was the first successful non-silver photographic printing process. The Sinotype uses a UV-sensitive contact printing process that requires a negative the same size as the final print. The blue colour of the cyanotype print is the result of reaction of ferrous ions to the reduction of the ferric ammonium citrate in combination with potassium cyan, potassium ferric cyanide. The cyanotype sensor sensitizer can be painted onto almost anything. And properly washed cyanotype print on quality 100 percent cotton paper is highly stable. One of the most stable f- I think the most stable photographic process there is, if it starts to fade, you just put it in a dark drawer for a while and then bring it out again. In making my artwork, I, I made a mask based on Gould's animals, uh, traced his animals. So where you block out the light t- um, coming onto the print, the paper, is where the paper stays white. I made negatives from digital photographs. And then I also used materials collected from the habitat of these animals I studied and lay that over the negatives. And and so you lay the paper on a piece of board, you put your negative and then bits of vegetation or whatever you're using and wedge it with glass, you go out into the sun and you expose it using the sun. And then you bring it back inside and you put it in water and it's fixed, it's done. So it's a fun process. Before I continue on to showing you some examples of my cyanotypes, I'll be quoting various 19th century texts and they'll refer to indigenous people as natives and blacks. Please understand that I'm quoting that language and I don't mean to offend anybody. So we have the Eastern pygmy possum. Inside the animal, I've got a negative made from a letter that Gould wrote to Gilbert dated in 15th of May, 1844, when Gilbert was still in Australia doing collections for Gould and Gould was back in London. The letter provides instructions for what Gould wants. He was quite specific. Um, for example, make full notes of the habits and economy of everything you collect, the colour of their parts, etc., all of which you in the fullest manner trans- transmit me for my sole use. So he was binded to collect things and send them to to John Gould only. And overlaid the negative, I've, I've collected um, wattle and eucalypt flowers because the pygmy possum eats nectar from these plants. Here's an example of um, Gil- Gilbert. He's, he, he, he gets his collections together and then catalog-, catalog them and then package them up and send them by ship back to London. He's got nice writing, so if you ever want to research Gilbert, you won't strain your brain too much. Um, So at the bottom, he tallies it up. Like this is just one example. It's it's quite horrifying when you think of the amount of killing that went on, really. Um, So this is for the Shepherd boat when he was in WA sending it to London. He's got 175 skins of birds. 95 skeletons, 17 quadrupeds, 9 reptiles, 1 fish skin, all packaged up and sent back. And sometimes these things went missing, Um, they deteriorated. It's really quite a risky business, four months on the boat. And I use that text in the squirrel glider, Cynotype. And here's a picture of the rufous bettong, locally extinct, um, but not extinct elsewhere. Um, in my research, it became quite apparent how vulnerable the ground nesting species are, the ones that rely on making nests in grass. And, um, and so I started making a lot of works with grass and a lot of trying to make tunnelling and laying, laying that over the paper. So the next sequence of photographs um, shows you that some of those examples. And here I've got the picture sitting on top of the picture by Richter, um, John Gould's illustrator. Southern Brown bandicoot. This this is so much written about the brown bandicoot, like if like you I think it was just must have been everywhere around Sydney because a lot of the naturalists were writing papers about them and sending them to the Zoological Society and uh, other societies in London. This one here not only did the grass, but I read that they um, thrive where there's been burning in terms of their habitat, so I collected some ash and sprinkled it onto the um, paper ended up with, you know, something that looks like the stars rather than... This is the um, dana, which is locally here. It's not extinct. Also uses a grass nest. And the water rat, I had the pleasure of um, seeing the water rat in my dam. I live out at Womboin, just out of Canberra Hills, you can call it. yeah, and we, I, there was, I was walking with my dog and he, typically she flushed this rat thing out into the dam. I thought I'd drowned something until I discovered that I actually was a very good swimmer. And discovering or seeing this rat, stayed for a winter, it's probably moved down, down the gully to the next dam, which is much bigger now, but um, I hope, hope it's still alive somewhere. But it did actually, seeing this rat and watching it at work, it did um, answer a few questions I had, because as the dams were getting low, I was wondering why there was all these piles of freshwater mussels absolutely everywhere. And it, it was to do with the rat. they dive, pick them up, swim to the edge, pull it apart, eat it. But they too also nest in, um, in grasses, in particular within the roots of plants. So this one has roots laid over it. And bit of a change. The New Holland mice mouse it's one of the species that 's being targeted to reintroduce to Mulligan 's flat. Yeah. And um, uh, this is, these are some pictures of the labo- labor- laboratory in AnU, so they, they've slightly extinct here, but there are still species that are obviously available in New South Wales where they collected it. Um, and so what they're doing is they're, they've brought them into the lab and they've got this um, breeding program to breed them up before they release them. Very intensive. I just watched it for a couple you know for an hour. Imagine, and, um, so you can understand why research is so expensive, and they try and make life good for them and give them tunnels and things to run around in and interesting food and try and you know match them up with compatible mates and try not to let them get too fat. That's another thing that. Captivity doesn't. This one here's a little bit fat, I'm told. And they give them shredded paper and they make these most beautiful nests. This one doesn't do it justice. Very neat. So continuing this whole grass and tunnel, I kind of made a very amateur attempt. I got grass and laid it over the, the paper. I kind of like that it's pretty dodgy because it shows the skill of the animal and the inadequacies of the human and back to the Eastern Betong with Adrian Manning, portrait. Adrian's standing in the Mulligan's flat, gazing, wondering, you know, oh my God, what have we done here, or maybe not. In 2011 and 2012, Adrian oversaw the translocation of the Eastern Betong from Tasmania, where there are still species, to Canberra. And it's now, I read in the paper on Saturday, I think, that it's now been listed as a species of the ACT that's gone from just being introduced as an experiment to actually a species. In conversation with Adrian, when I showed him this picture, he told me that at the time, very little, when he was doing the translocation, very little was known about these species. Questions like, would the betons find enough materials to build nests with, for example? Should they supply some material to help them along their way? They, They didn't in the end. He said it was a very stressful time, and it's easy to look back now and, and see the success they're breeding like rabbits um, and think you know oh that was nothing and again it's got the grass it's got the um, wallaby grass and the kangaroo grass of the the motive where they um, nest I went out there two weeks ago walking through where the in the kangaroo exclusion zone where there's lots of tussocks that haven't been grazed down and Without it even trying to, flushed out two betongs, which have made my day, I must say. <clears throat> so, I come to some illustrations. Betongs, well, before I talk about the illustration, betongs were a familiar part of colonial life, notable garden and agricultural pests, somewhat akin to rabbits being readily adaptable to modified habitats. And that resemblance to the rabbit's size and same habits, which is why Gould initially called them Betongia caninculus, which means rabbit. That's not their name anymore. Um, This illustration is by Gould. the, The library has copied all the correspondence and papers of Gould that are held at the British Museum. And um, and it, I, I was quite excited to come across this because there's nothing left of, there's no di- Gould didn't leave any um, diaries behind or drawings or sketches really. Um, it's mostly just what he's written in the Memoirs of Australia and his letters to various people. And there's, all, there's this debate whether he was actually a good drawer or not because he's, he's got his name on all the lithographs. So if anyone's read um, the book, The Ruling Passion of John Gould by Isabella Tree, she kind of thinks he exploited her wife, his wife. And Melissa Ashley in her recent book, The Birdman's Wife, if anyone's read it, she sort of follows Elizabeth um, Tree's line of thoughts. Sharp, who um, worked with Gould and wrote a short biography of him, said that Gould always did sketches um, for the illustrators, to, um, to guide their, their work. And um, he says it's a bit of a rough sketcher, but he had a good eye for detail in terms of knowing colour and things like that. And in this, um, this little crude little diagram, really, it's of the betong, he talks about how the tail is used, to, how the betong is using the tail to scratch itself. When I first looked at it, I thought, oh, it's a betong trying to jump, but no. It's my interpretation of his text, anyway. And these are notes by Richter. He's um, he's illustrator for *Mammals of Australia* because, unfortunately, Gould's wife Elizabeth died in 1841 before they started publishing um, the book on mammals, and so he had to get another illustrator. And he worked with Richter for most of *The Mammals of Australia*. Victor had never been to Australia, so he had to come somehow do these illustrations without often observing the animal. So he made sketches based on um, drawings, that, um, illustrations based on drawings that with Gould and John would have done in Australia, from animal skins, <clears throat> and also from live animals that were um, the ones that had successfully been transported back to London. And this one here, he's made all these notes, and I'll show you some more sketches about the behavior of the beton. For example, he starts off by talking about how the betong carries grass in its tail. <clears throat> and, the, and the drawing here on the right is one that is incorporated into the plate when you look at it. And then he's um, incorporated v- various other dances. And then, also I thought interesting, on the right-hand side, he lists um, he, the measurements of the animal, how long their tail are, his tail is and feet, to help with his drawing. A bit like an ecologist, a bit like Waterhouse did in his very exciting book. Um, in my art practice, I also looked at the feral animals, because that's quite a big story and, and for Mulligan's flat. So, the causes of marsupials are becoming vulnerable and extinct, increasingly agricultural landscape bounties, competition for the rabbit, feral domestic cats, and the red fox. The fox, I learnt when I went to science, scientists in the sanctuary is more prevalent around humans, um, more um, higher numbers. You might not be able to see it, but I created a negative of Mulligan's Flat, the topographic map behind the fox. And for the cat, I, I created a negative using the topographic map for one where I live. And for the dog, I've included the rifle. <clears throat> when Gould came to Australia, binoculars hadn't been invented, and they were, so they were pretty much resorting to guns so they could catch these things and um, identify them. So I put, the dog in the, I put the gun in the dog. Another reason I put the gun there is because often in his um, Memoirs of Australia he writes about how, you know, we shot this animal and then the dogs went after it all. the dogs went after it and then we caught it kind of thing. For example, when writing about the southern brown bandicoot, how it would be startled by him walking through the bush and it would probably have made it safely to another hiding place. And then Gould says if their career were not stopped by a discharge from my gun or by my dogs." And the rabbit. In in the rabbit I've included a mix of um, grass species, native and exotic, because I suppose the rabbit, the way we are now in Australia, ecologists would call it, I think if this is the right term, a novel ecosystem where we are kind of moving forward with a combination of animals from different places now. And the question begs to be asked, why do rabbits flourish when native animals of a similar size don't? And I asked Adrian Manning this question, and he said it's either the, he doesn't know, but he's thinking it's either that the rabbit has a natural fear of the fox, and they, I think the researchers have established that native animals don't, or they breed quickly enough to replace themselves. Here I've got a picture of the eastern quoll, it's been reintroduced to Mulligan's flat. And like the thylacine, the quolls, there's two quolls I talk about, the eastern quoll and the spotted tail quoll, were feared and hated by um, settlers. <clears throat> they were considered vermin by settlers. Native cats are found, fond of good things, someone writes. The dairy, the larder, the henry are all favourite places to resort with these vermin. Newspaper accounts are rich with articles on quolls. If you ever want to spend an afternoon looking through Trove, you'll you'll find something amusing there, I can show you. Initially, the article's are vitriol. One article published in 1869 gives an account of how man was awakened by eastern Quoll biting his neck. And this was not the only account of a quoll doing that. Um, And so they they got this um, nickname, the vampire cat. But really, it's all myth, because when, when you read into the article, they never really saw the animal. <laughs> they just want to, for some reason, blame the quoll. And then they'll later remind, when the rabbits were released, and people go, uh-oh, what have we done? Um, I read an account where they said, where quolls are, the rabbits' population gets squashed down. Um, so they were very good at killing the quolls, to the point where the Queen Age reports how they shipped 200 quolls up to Cobar, I think, to help kill rabbits, but um, fortunately the quolls died, they weren't much use. And then the foxes came and then that was the end of the quolls, pretty much. Gould, when he was writing about um, quolls in the mammals of Australia, he seemed to have a more measured um, view of them. He says, the animals of this genus are very vivarine, so their name is has um, viverine as the species, meaning cat-like, both in their appearance and in their sang, sangu, sanguinary disposition, and are probably the true representatives of Australia of that group of quadrupeds. The, the term, I can't pronounce this very well, I'm sorry, sangu, sanguinary, is rightly applied to some of these animals. Yet there is not one which a child might not conquer. The boldest of them are most troublesome and dangerous, and robbery of the hen roost is the utmost of the depredations their nature prompts them to commit. It's an up close. So this was what this is like a first study I did of the call, and I was just thinking about rabbits and so there's rabbit bones and rabbit hair, drawings of rabbits in amongst the bushes of um grassy woodland. And this is a signotype of the um, spotted-tail quoll, which in, is located in New South Wales. Um, yeah, I incorporated the, um, the feathers thinking about the whole fear of the poultry being taken and the bird netting as a way of protecting the, f- the, the, the fowl, but also thinking about the fence that's been put up at Mulligan's Flat and how we now have these animals contained by a fence. This is um, a, a picture of a footprint tunnel that um, Mulligan's Flat researchers provided me. And it shows you mouse, mouse pads. So they create a tunnel with um, ink pads and, and entice the animal in with um, peanut butter. You could do it at home, I think. And this is a picture of the antichinus where I've incorporated some of those footprints and using that process, the researchers recently found out that the agile antikinus is now they thought it was extinct, but they discovered that it is in the ACT. And the echidna. This one, this echidna contains text by Gerard Kreffs, The Memoirs of Australia, which was published in 1871. It was a lower quality um, publication. It only had 15 plates, but it was designed to reach an educational audience and not require subscriptions. And Joward Kreft was the, um, he was a zoologist and he was the director of the Australian Museum in Sydney. At the time of the publication, not much was known about echidnas, particularly how they reproduced. It completely bewildered them. There's all these accounts in the memoirs of Australia about talking to Indigenous people and settlers and all sorts of people and and lots um, um, lots of cutting up of echidnas took place to try and figure that one out. If you go to the exhibition, you can read the text that Kreft has written That's, and see what he, how he experimented with kidneys. I won't read it out. You can go to the exhibition and <laughs> read it for yourself. Um, it's not very nice. And this is an image of the common ringtail possum. I believe they live in the Magi. And I've got a picture of Joseph Lysep, the um, Indigenous man climbing the tree, hunting for mastupials, most likely. And um, if you want to read about an interpretation of these paintings, I could recommend reading John Maynard's book, The Light and Shade, An Aboriginal Perspective of Joseph Lysett's Art. Joseph Lysett was a convict who he got pardoned and then he, he did some um, scenes of New South Wales, including Aboriginal life in the 1820s until he got caught for forgery again. And the grass, it's cut up and laid over it quite thickly because the representing again that grass bowl of a nest. I've forgotten what it's called, it's a very beautiful when you see them, it's, it's like a basket. And finally, my last slide of the animals is um, the Fasca girl. Gilbert requested that Gilbert find out as much as possible from Aboriginal people. And he writes to Gilbert on, in 1839. Oh, Gilbert writes to Gould, sorry, and says the governor, which is in WA, the governor has given directions for two natives to be chosen for my express purpose. They will be essential use to me as they know perfectly well of where to find particular species. Um, so, yeah, they and Gould, um, he, he realised to learn quickly how to engage the local people. And again in a letter in September, 1839, from Perth, Gilbert writes to Gould, you will be pleased to hear that I have succeeded in getting Aboriginal names nearly all my species. And in this animal here, in in the members of Australia, Gould lists the different sources of information, um, as well as the Aboriginal name often in the text. And and for this species, um, the species name is um, Tapatafa, which is the um, New South Wales Indigenous people's name for this animal. <coughs> oh, before I say thank you, I have a concluding slide. <laughs> so, in my artwork, my aim was to bring together aspects of 19th century experiences of Australian mammals the curiosity of learning, the experience of abundancy, and overlay this with scientific knowledge and first hand experiences of today. I chose to use the cyanotype process because of the possibilities it has for developing layers within the artwork. I hope that when you go back out into the grassy woodland landscape, you have a think about what it was like, what it is like now, and what it might be in the future. And thank you. Thank you, everybody.
0: now we do have time for questions the lights are being raised that's good we've got Susie and Renee with microphones so perhaps just raise your hand if you do have a question for Karen I'm very interested in uh, very interested in the way that you've um, uh, incorporated the plants with the uh, with the animals are those plants necessarily uh, associated with the animal, otherwise uh, where they live?
1: Yes, the plants... Um, I picked the plants that... I, uh, in researching the animals, I looked at contemporary books on mammals and their biology and habitat, and so I sourced plants that met those needs, and they're from my property where I live and nearby, from. In, in box-gum grassy woodland ecosystem. Uh, there's one there that has quite a bit of water,
0: so that
1: is... Dilbada, Kesha Dilbada. Yes, or well, my interpretation of it, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Well sometimes I use Dilbada as well because it's seen as a pest. Like, I, I, I married the Dil-bada, the with the um, common brush towel possum, for example, because they're both kind of, when you go to barbecues, they both generate the same discussion. <laughs> so, not always the biology, but it's a cultural.
0: So, Carolyn, do you expect you'll be generating some more of that style of, of work into the future?
1: Oh, I, there are some animals I want to go back to and, and continue to think about. Yeah, and there's some animals that are on my list that didn't get made. Um, so, I, g- I guess the cyanotypes can be considered a bit of a study. I'm thinking about bigger works that aren't using the cyanotype but in the same subject area. Yeah. They yeah, they're they're one off. You can recreate something similar, but they are one off. Yeah. So you just keep reworking the idea until
0: Yeah. I am wondering if the dingo is on your list, oh, I use, something to look yeah, at.
1: Yeah, like the, I didn't put them all up. They do have the dingo. Yeah, yeah.
0: I wonder what the impact of reintroducing dingoes into this area might be.
1: (laughs) Yes, well, I mean, I've got a dog that's Kelpie and I think that's a descendant of the dingo has similar designs. Um, Yeah, I don't know. You could ask an ecologist in the room what they think about reintroducing the dingo. (laughs) Well,
0: my son happens to be working on that for his (laughs) research area, so I thought I'd just throw it out there. Yeah, throw
1: it at me. But my sister-in-law's got dingoes. She's part of the rescue... And they come and stay with us and, yeah, I don't know. If you got sheep, you wouldn't be happy, would you? (laughs) But, yeah, the kangaroos, there's no predation on them. They're grazing themselves out of house and home. Yeah, it's tricky. Um, It's open, I think, well I can tell you the weekends, not open Sunday, it's open Saturday afternoon and then it's open every weekday, probably nine till five, yeah, yeah, and there's an artist talk on Friday at one o'clock if people are interested, with myself and another lady who's exhibiting there, and then on the 21st of September we've organised a science art panel with Sue McIntyre and Belinda Wilson who's doing her PhD on quolls. so we'll, be in the gallery, people are interested in attending that and having a discussion. Yeah. Yep. Hello.
0: Did that sound? Yeah. Oh, thank you. That was so interesting. Oh, I just really wanted to make a bit of a comment, though, really as an art historian, but also because Elizabeth Gould was my great-great-great-great-grandmother and she did not feel exploited in any way. Oh, she didn't? And it's become a bit of a kind of feminist mythology, I think, that... Somehow she was slightly um, used and maybe abused by jungle.
1: She thought she was having the best time. She thought she was what? Sorry. Having the best time. Oh, good. <laughs> she loved what she did. Yeah, good. Yeah. I've I've read her diary and her yeah. letters, and she yeah. comes across as very modest. But yeah, no. But she yeah. she
0: felt that she was very privileged to have that opportunity to come to Australia. Okay. But it's a little bit of fiction that's been. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's started by
1: Isabel Isabella. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But thank you, that's fascinating. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Any more questions?
1: We're
0: just about done. Oh, one more. Um, You mentioned in relation to the echidna Mm. that there were negative comments. I wonder if you could just.
1: Well, you you want to hear what it says. Do you want me to read out what Kreft has written? That would be nice. Oh, okay. I was just trying to get you to the exhibition. (laughs) Am I going to destroy it? Well, actually, it's not very nice. It says, um, uh, the echidna will live for months in captivity without taking food. And Mr. Keppert's suggestion that it feeds only in winter and hibernates during summer is by no means improbable. Anyway, it is difficult to drown one. About 8 to 10 minutes, at least, are necessary for the experiment. The animal is also tolerably, to- tolerably snake-proof, and a specimen spe- frequently bitten by some of our most venomous snakes, reptiles, lived, lived for 10 hours. The animal often appears to be rooted to the ground, and if sheltered in some convenient corner where the soil is stiff clay, a spade is necessary, <laughs> to um, kind of wedge it. Can't read it anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's just what they did in those days. Yeah. Anyway. Different ethics now. <laughs> the amount of ethics that goes on a day and you, whoa. <laughs> anyway, does that satisfy your curiosity? <laughs> There's plenty more of that out there if you want to read it. Anyway. Maybe I've made it out sound made it out to be worse than it was. Don? <laughs> that might wind
0: us up for the questions, I think, because we do actually have another part to this evening, don't Thank we? Thank you, everyone. Yeah, we I mm-hmm.
1: oh. just you get to look at a picture. Ah, oh, lovely.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so, unfortunately, we've run out of time for questions, but I'm sure you can grab. Carolyn after this evening uh, just upstairs when we have some refreshments Um, but uh, perhaps before we move on I'd just like to ask you to join me in thanking Dr Carolyn.